Hello, everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Dimitri Rockfeld. He's the co-founder and CEO at Machinio, a search engine for buying and selling new and used industrial equipment and machinery that is trusted by millions of global users. Since its founding, Machinio has continued to revolutionize the way buyers and sellers operate by introducing new technology and saving both sides substantial time and effort. Machinio's standout growth and success led to its acquisition by Liquidity Services in July of 2018. We're here to talk about Dimitri's experiences of starting, building, and selling Machinio. But before we get into that, Dimitri, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, real excited to talk today. Why don't you just start us off telling telling us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? How did you get started in this business? Sure. So uh, my name is Dimitri, uh, as you mentioned. So we, we founded the business in end of 2012 and 2013. Uh, and the truth is we kind of stumbled uh, on this idea. My co-founder, uh, and he was the chief technology officer of Machinio, his name was Dan Pinto. He came to me he came to me with this idea in uh, around 2012 when we were living in San Francisco. And randomly, uh, back when he was still living in Chicago, he had a colleague of his ask Dan to find a used printing press online. Um, and Dan, not being from the industry, was like, okay, you know, I'll start at Google just like you know, we typically start for finding anything that we want to purchase online. And in that process, after spending about 45 minutes and not being able to find this you know, Used printing press that that his friend had asked him to, to locate. You know, he had his eureka moment and thought, you know, these days we have so many vertical search engines that exist for just about every other industry. You know, you have Indeed to find jobs, and you have Kayak to find flights and hotels. Why doesn't a similar platform exist for used machinery? And so that was kind of like the kernel of an idea, and, and he held that with him for some time. And then we were both living uh, in San Francisco. He and I have known each other since middle school. So we grew up together in Miami and had dabbled in various internet-based ventures for years and years, never full-time, but just small, small projects that we were interested in, you know, eBay stores and, and you know, websites and blogs, et cetera. And we always knew that we wanted to focus you know, full-time on a venture together you know, after college. And so we finally had this opportunity in 2012 where we had this idea. Now, like I mentioned, neither of us were from the used machinery industry. So early on, it was a lot of you know, customer discovery, customer research, and really trying to understand whether this high hypothesis that, that Dan had about this industry lacking a vertical search engine was in fact accurate. But after talking to a number of dealers and potential buyers in the industry, uh, it turned out that was the case. You know, over the last you know, five to 10 years, so much inventory had gone online. But at the same time, you know, buyers were still finding and purchasing equipment in you know, often similar ways that they were doing before. You know, they had individual relationships with with dealers and there were a number of online classifieds that 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 were used, but nothing to the extent that you see in other industries like cars and, and, and jobs and, and flights and, and hotels. And so that was really kind of the impetus for the for the idea. And so then we just uh, started working on it together. That's awesome. I have a little bit out of the bag question here. You said you kind of had this idea, kind of passionate about it. It sounds like you were really passionate about, you know, your partner who you were working with. 
would you say that, uh, which, which would you say was more important, the idea for the business or the partner that you started it with? I mean, for me, I really do think it's the partner, you know, having you know, grown Machinio and also having spoken to a lot of other founders and entrepreneurs, both who have worked with other founders and, and, and some that have started companies uh, on, on their own. You know, the early team is, is critical, really. At the end of the day, execution is the difference between a successful startup and, and, and not, you know, in addition to, to that timing and other factors. But I think for us, you know, having this... A ten plus year foundation of friendship was very very valuable because at the end of the day, anytime we encountered an obstacle and a hardship, and of course we encountered you know, our fair share, just like any startup, knowing that the person on the other line you know is not an adversary in any way, it's somebody that I've known for a long time, you know that provided both of us definitely kind of a sense of relief and, and comfort because no matter how difficult things were, we knew that you know, we had this partner next to us that was there for us. And I think you know, he helped me you know, maybe when I was down and I helped him when he was down. And, and we, we really kind of helped keep each other you know, motivated and, and, and ready to kind of keep tackling on the problems. So for me, I thought this was true before we started Machinio. And I, I think it's that much more true now, having worked you know, with him for, for seven years, you know, the early team, and especially you know, the co-founder that maybe you start a company with, is more critical than uh, even the idea. And that's something that both of us were really fortunate to have from the beginning, you know, somebody that we had known. We, we didn't really have to develop a relationship over the time that we were working together, we already had the, you know, that solid, solid foundation going in. And I, I, I believe it really helped us uh, you know, along the way. Well, yeah, that's awesome to hear. Thanks for answering that one. That one wasn't uh, quite in the show notes, but I just thought it'd be interesting. And it doesn't have, hurt to have a good idea too. And it sounds like you guys uh, had a good idea. So you've kind of given us the sort of seed idea. You know, What was the impetus behind the, the decision? You've also kind of talked about a little bit of your exploratory market research. You know, you just, you, you looked at the market, what's your addressable market? It looks good. It looks like there's a real opportunity here. Can you tell me, like, can you unpack exactly what Machinio does today? You know, is it the same thing? Is it the same kind of concept uh, that you had seven years ago? Has it, you know, I, you know, all startups kind of grow and pivot, so I'm sure it's not exactly the same, but yeah, does it kind of work uh, how you had envisioned? What, what do you have here today? Sure. It does in, in large part. So the core concept from day one, which you described at, at the start of the show, was building a search engine for used machinery. So what we noticed in the beginning was this information discovery problem. Now, a lot of this equipment had, gone, had come online over a period of five to 10 years. Um, there were many, many websites that were, were started by, by dealers and, and brokers and, and other suppliers of, of used machinery. But no one had really come in and tried to aggregate all of that together. And as a result, if you're interested in finding a used machine online, you, you might start a Google just like Dan did in his early attempt. But then you might spend you know, hours, days, weeks navigating through hundreds, thousands of, of different websites before you find what you're looking for. Or maybe even if you, you find it sooner, you don't necessarily find you know, the best price for it. So, so that was really... A, 
the pain point that that we noticed uh, from the beginning, and that's what we tried to solve. And the way that we tried to solve it was, you know, simply just aggregating all of this inventory from thousands of different websites, so that as a potential consumer, you, know, you could visit one website and filter for exactly what you're looking for, and not have to spend you know, days out, you know, days, weeks, months of visiting. Uh, you know, many individual websites, and so that was, that was kind of the, the 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 core the core product, and that's something that we really focused on. You know, from day one all the way through you know day seven year. Over time, it was a lot more of becoming more and more comprehensive. So in you know in the beginning, we had you know, hundreds of thousands of, of of individual listings. You know, towards the end, we we had millions. It was also I, I guess growing the number of verticals that we were in. So while we definitely try to be you know fairly you know kind of industry agnostic from the beginning where we where we try to you know assist people looking for agricultural equipment construction equipment transportation machine tooling woodworking processing packaging so we did try to kind of be quite broad from the beginning but over time we tried to get you know deeper and deeper into each of these verticals and at the same time continue growing um, I think semiconductor equipment um, and laboratory equipment were a couple others that we ended up adding kind of years down the line but it very much was about trying to find every single used machine online so that you you knew as a buyer if you came to machinio um, you know, you basically had in front of you every single available machine um, that was that was uh, for purchase on, on any website. Um, so that was kind of the core idea, and that's something that we focused on you know, from day one all the way through through seven years in. I think our monetization model that's something that we kind of experimented a lot over time to really figure out what worked. So in fact, early on, we started with a transaction model where we had these you know, informal based you know, commission relationships with dealers where they would pay us when one of our leads resulted in a successful sale. But over time, we realized that to make that model work, you really had to police it and you really had to uh, ensure that the entire transaction happened on the platform. And as a very kind of small company, we realized that that was, you know, a challenge in and of itself and, and would distract us from trying to be the most comprehensive platform. And that was really the goal. And so we moved away from that monetization model and then became much more of a subscription based business where dealers would purchase an annual subscription. And in return, you know, their equipment would be listed on, on our platform. And then we would then drive interested buyers to them uh, where the transaction would happen off platform. So that was kind of like the, the core idea from the beginning and something we continued working on. I would say where we did end up you know, making additional, I guess, you know, departures from that core idea happened in the last couple of years, where one of the problems that, that we saw in the industry, in addition to this information discovery problem, was the fact that a lot of these dealers just did not have the, you know, the technical background to create you know, great websites. And so as a result... You know, if you weren't using, if you weren't on Machinio, or if you were not advertising with one of our competitors, it was very, very unlikely that a buyer would ever find your equipment online by starting a Google. Your website was not, you know, optimized for search engines. It wasn't optimized for mobile. It was a very, very poor user experience. You know, they didn't have even some of the, you know, marketing capabilities to to reach out to some of their, you know. Uh, former contacts, and so we we saw that there was an opportunity to, you know, leverage our 
technical, you know, experience, our background, and helping improve, you know, their digital presence, not only in helping list their equipment on our website, but even creating, you know, better websites for them so that they were not necessarily reliant on having to market as heavy on you know, any uh, you know, digital uh, marketplace. And so one of the, the new products that was uh, launched um, in the last couple of years when, when I was there uh, was a product called Machinery Host. And it was basically a, an inventory management and, and, and website you know, capability for these dealers so that they basically had you know, the, the latest and greatest technology for themselves, which then enabled them to have a much stronger digital presence and enabled their website websites uh, to rank better at Google. It made it easier for them to, you know, maintain their equipment on their site. It gave them, you know, these marketing capabilities where they can alert, you know, their buyers and, and, and former contacts when they had new equipment that, that came in. So that was, I think, one of the pain points, like I mentioned, we, we, we noticed through our conversations with these dealers. And, and it became very obvious to us just by visiting their website and how outdated some of these websites were. Um, and it wasn't because these dealers didn't understand that they needed a better presence. It just stemmed from the fact that they didn't know how to, how to get that had to get that presence. And because we already had relationships with thousands and thousands of these dealers who trusted us to be there, kind of the digital player who trusted you know, our uh, tech background, it became kind of a, a natural extension of the marketing exposure we were providing them to offer them this technology platform for, for themselves. And, and that product has, has been going really well over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. So we, we kind of have a chance here. Do you would you like to speak a little bit more about the the platform product, or or do you want to move to kind of the competition here? I think I, I covered it pretty well. Yeah, basically at a high level, it's you know giving giving dealers an opportunity to you know show off their their equipment, show off their company in in a better light than they had with either their outdated website or in some cases we had dealers that had no website at all. And so in, in the most basic level it was creating a website for them that was you know, mobile friendly, that was a search engine friendly where it was a very seamless process to to add and you know maintain and and update the equipment uh, and also made it very very easy for them to kind of work with with us and and, and other players to kind of export that equipment on, on various marketing platforms that they might use. And over time, it was adding other capabilities that they were looking for, for example, you know, more readily able to, uh, to market uh, to their, their contacts when they did have additional equipment uh, available. Yeah, so it's basically strapping the little guy up with enough tech, technical know-how, enough tools to basically create a footprint in the, in the digital, the digital world that usually those, those small players haven't been able to do traditionally. Next, I want to ask about your key differentiation. You, you mentioned, you know, you have competition in this space. Can you speak about your competition and, and tell me what differentiates you from your competition? What is your secret sauce as a company? We definitely had a number of, of competitors when we started. Um, they were all basically classified. So they were tra traditional, you know, offline classifieds that ended up moving online, but very much the model was, was the same. You know, they charged for, for advertising and they enabled individuals who visit uh, those classifieds to get access to, to more equipment uh, than they would in any individual website. Where I believe we really set ourselves apart was in making the process for dealers 
as easy and seamless as possible. So for example, one of the biggest pain points that dealers experience as far as working with classifieds and even in their own website is the amount of time it takes to uh, you know, maintain their equipment. Um, on, on these various platforms. You know, basically, you have to manually kind of go in on a daily or weekly basis, add the new equipment that, that you now have available, remove anything that, that's been sold. And because it is very time consuming, dealers often end up not doing it or doing it very, very rarely. And so one of the problems that you do experience with some of these other uh, marketing platforms is the fact that a lot of the equipment is outdated. Um, and so, you know, as a as a buyer, you might go to one of our competitors and, and find like the perfect machine for you at, at the right price and the right location. You end up contacting the dealer and then the dealer tells you, well, uh, that was actually sold, you know, two weeks ago or two months. Sorry, you know, I didn't, you know, I forgot to update it. Or maybe they'll blame the classified themselves and say, well, we did update it. And it's just that that, that they, they haven't, uh, they, they haven't kind of processed some of the updates. And so we, we realized early on that as a new company, any opportunities we have to remove friction, that can really help us differentiate ourselves apart. And so that's one of the reasons why we decided to leverage technology in a way none of our competitors did. With all of our competitors, the, the dealer has to manually kind of go in and, and log in and, and maintain that equipment. In our case, we you know, aggregate that equipment directly from their website without having them, without requiring them to do just about anything. And so that saved them a tremendous amount of time because they, they had the confidence that as long as they maintain their own website, which for the most part, they were pretty good at doing, like if they were going to update a single you know, point of reference for their equipment, it would be their own website. And so by visiting their website directly, you know, using you know, crawler spiders and ensuring that our database matches what's on their website. We both ensured that our platform was kind of more up-to-date and more accurate in real time than any of our competitors. And that was also a huge selling point for the dealers because when we worked with them, there was no additional time commitment on their end. They knew that as long as they maintained their own website, they would then our website would, would be uh, accurate as well. So that was kind of the big differentiator from the, the dealer standpoint. And at the same time, like I referenced, from the, the buyer standpoint, by us being really, really comprehensive in terms of the equipment that, that we showed buyers, that started differentiating us from a lot of our competitors who were not leveraging technology to, to, to crawl the web. And so as a result, a lot of their platforms were not as comprehensive. And so I think those two pieces uh, is a good example of how we leverage technology to make the process easier for buyers because they knew that if they found something on our site, odds are that that piece of equipment actually existed. And that's how we also made it easier for, for dealers because we removed friction from the dealer having to do any work to kind of maintain that equipment on any of the, the marketing platforms that, that they worked with. At the same time, you know, I'll be honest to say, you know, we, we, had an, we had and still do have a number of formidable competitors where their big advantage over ours is the fact that they've been in the industry for you know, 20 years, both initially as an offline publication and over time as a joint kind of online and, and, and offline publication. So that's pretty much one of the reasons why we had to leverage technology in this way, because we had to kind of overcome the fact that a lot of clients did not know who we were and so uh, had you know some reservations. And I would say that's also an area where initially kind of 
Richie Brothers and then eventually Liquidity Services kind of helped us because in both cases, you know, the, the Series A kind of validated the model and put kind of a, a well-known brand behind Machinio. And eventually when Liquidity Services acquired us, that put another very kind of well-known and respected brand behind Machinio. And that really helped get especially dealers comfortable with working with us because it was much easier to say, you know, you've heard of these brands, you know, they believe in what Machinio is doing. Uh, before we had that, it was a little bit more challenging because all we could say is, you know, we work with a couple of dealers. Have you heard of them? No. Well, you know, trust us. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a good area where, you know, having strong partners, either as, as investors or as an acquirers can really help, you know, scale the business. And we're very fortunate to have, you know, both from our, in our investing rounds and also afterwards, you know, a number of, of strong partners that gave us the validation that we lacked in an industry where, you know, people are quite wary of what they haven't heard of. Um, the user machinery industry, like I mentioned at the start, is, a, is an industry that's been very slow to move online relative to, to many others. And there's still, I would say, some distrust of technology, some distrust of, you know, platforms that you're not as comfortable with uh, that, that you haven't used before that you don't know 30 other dealers are, are using. And so by having some of those partners that helped us overcome some of those initial objections and, and, and continue growing. Thanks for breaking that down. It's really interesting to hear kind of how you approached creating your platform, creating your tools. It sounds like you had a really user-driven methodology there. And uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. You're, you're selling software to people who kind of sell or uh, sell repurposed hardware. I, I, I imagine there's probably a lot of uh, moral conflicts there uh, in, in the mind. <laughs> Next, let's go to kind of talking about the founding team at Machinio. You know, uh, when you're building a founding team, you want to align the three R's. Those are, you know, the relationships in the, in the team, the roles and the rewards for doing your work. So let's start with roles. How did you, how did you handle assigning roles and positions among the founders? For us, because Dan, my co-founder, was much more technical and in fact coded the first version of Machinio, it was a natural extension to have him, you know, lead the 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 the, the technical effort. And so that's one of the reasons he became the chief technology officer. And as a result, I became everything else. And so I became the CEO. In practice, however, we really ran the company as co-CEOs, uh, which is something you know, you've seen some companies do, but it, it's still uh, not as common. I believe for us, that really helped us because before either of us embarked on any new initiative you know within our you know domain so for me my domain was operations sales customer service and for Dan you know his domain was basically the the, the product before we encounter or before we, we embarked on, on any new initiative it was kind of the the hurdle that we we had to overcome was to convince you know the other party that it was it was a worthwhile effort you know, in some cases you know as, as a CEO you just you do you make the decisions you think is right in our case you know both of us you know had to convince the other that it was a it was a worthwhile initiative to take and so that really helped I believe like streamline our decision making uh, because 
by having you know some barrier that you need to meet, it 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 forced us to only focus on what we really thought was critical, and not just you know pursue any initiative that maybe we thought was interesting, but our our co-founder might not. And so, like I said, you know, for us, we really ran it at, at the company as as co-CEOs, and and I was involved in product development, and and Dan was involved in operations and and sales, but as far as just like the high level roles uh, because of his technical background you know, he was the chief technology officer and, and i was the, the chief executive officer mm-hmm. uh, and then i'm sure the listeners are curious let's talk about rewards how did you guys split the equity and the cash compensation like in all aspects of our business we tried to make decisions that you know created the the, the least amount of friction and because we are both co-founders, because we were both involved from day one, the natural decision, the, the simple decision, the obvious decision for us was everything should be equal. So as far as kind of like equity, cash compensation from, from day one all the way through you know, the last day that we worked at Machinia, we were completely equals. And that therefore that eliminated you know, any issues from, from arising and uh, it, kept, it kept things really, really, uh, really simple for both of us. Yep. I love it. Always good to keep things simple. As a founding team, uh, when you were creating your minimum viable product, did you did the team have any missing skills to launch that you needed to go out and find? So I would say sales was, was a, a, that's less of maybe the minimal viable product. As, cre- as far as creating the minimal viable product, Dan did, did a fantastic job. And for, for him, it was a lot of uh, learning on the job. So in fact, he, he became a, an incredible developer while building Machinio, which is pretty impressive if you think about that. So I wouldn't say there was, there was anything missing from a, a minimal viable product perspective. But while both of us had you know, experience in, in you know, building small websites, we had experience in, you know, in, in strategy and, and operations through you know, the, some of the previous uh, occupations uh, we held, we did not have a sales experience. And that's an area that we really focused on as soon as the product had been launched and, and as soon as we were you know, driving these leads from, from buyers to dealers, it was trying to hire a sales team uh, from the beginning that could really start developing the relationships with these dealers and can really teach us a lot about the industry that we didn't know. You know the only thing we really knew about the industry came from you know, a few hundred conversations we had early on with various parties, but that was really just the, the tip of the iceberg as far as everything we needed needed to know, and and one of our earliest hires was a man by the name of Steve Glad, who who's still one of the uh, core individuals at Machinio, and and one of the individuals that are now you know managing the company. Given that myself and the other co-founder you know, are no longer involved, and he really helped us learn everything that we didn't know about the industry, and there were a lot of things that we didn't know going in, how. It really is an industry built on relationships. And if you have those relationships with dealers, it's you know easy to grow. And if you don't have those relationships to dealers, it's going to be very, very hard to convince individuals to give you opportunity to give your, you know, product uh, a chance and once you know he discovered that and relayed that to us that's actually when we started investing a lot more resources by becoming a, a, a larger part of the you know use machinery you know community uh, being involved in a number of associations you know going to a lot of these 
dealership events and, and becoming seen as really like an industry player and not just this like, you know, technical product that maybe you're getting some leads from and, and you, you've heard of, but where you don't necessarily have like a, you know, a face behind that product. And so that's an area that Steve really helped us with. And, and so I would say sales is probably the, the biggest area of weakness uh, for our team because neither Dan nor I had a tremendous amount of sales experience kind of going into building the product. So I want to keep talking about those early hires. How long was it before you started making your first hires? And, you know, you already mentioned that sales is one of the first areas of expertise where you kind of needed to go find someone. Who else, who else was a part of that early stage hiring process? So for us, I would say one, one of the areas that we probably didn't do a, a great job in the beginning was waiting a little bit too long to hire. Our goal was to try to be as lean as possible. And, and that remained, you know, from, from the beginning all the way to the end. But as a result, I think we, were, we weren't as quick as we should have been in you know, delegating a lot of the responsibilities each of us had that could have been done by somebody else. And so that's probably an area where we weren't as productive early on as we could have been if we just hired a couple more individuals to help with even things like you know, customer support that could be done by anybody, it doesn't need to be done by you know, the CEO. And so there were a number of areas early on where we probably held on to these tasks longer than we should have, both because we were trying to conserve capital, also because we felt like we're best equipped to handle those jobs. But over time, I, you know, I think it became you know, quite obvious to us that the impact that you know, the two you know, co-founders can have is not on you know, individual tasks that we complete, but in you know, managing you know, a really, in, in first, you know, recruiting and, and hiring, and also managing you know, a very effective uh, Effective, effective team. So that's probably kind of an area of, of uh, uh, maybe a, uh, a mistake we made early on that we ended up uh, rectifying over time. But yeah, I would say sales was definitely kind of an area. And, and we hired, we started hiring salespeople within the first, definitely within the first year, I would say between kind of the six month to a year period is when we started trying to hire the right salespeople. And it took us a, you know, a, a, couple, a couple of failed attempts before, uh, before we landed on, on Steve. And the reason why we ended up focusing um, on that role in particular is because we, we already started you know, creating these uh, relationships between buyers and dealers. And so that's when we knew we needed to find the right monetization uh, scheme. Um, so we could start driving, you know, revenue on the platform, and that's a, a big area where, where Steve came in. Uh, besides besides sales, it was just you know growing our technical team. Since for a long time, Dan basically, basically created the the MVP, was the designer for the company, and also you know created uh, all of the individual you know crawling capabilities to kind of go out and aggregate all of this equipment. But you know that was not sustainable as we wanted to become more comprehensive as we want to kind of go into new verticals. And so yeah, expanding on our technical team was something else that we, we focused on within the first year. And how did you expand that team? You know, we're all uh, probably listening to this podcast from, from the comfort of our homes. Did you hire remote team members? Um, and then if you did, what were some of the pros and cons of doing that? That's actually an area where o Oleg from Maxfield helped us. I, I believe he, he connected us with one of the first 
remote development shops that we ended up using. So for us, you know, the decision to use you know remote developers came down to uh, a few factors. Now, early on, we tried to hire developers uh, both on the West Coast and, and East Coast since we started the company on the West Coast and then we went through an accelerator program in New York City before we ended up settling in Chicago. So we had experience trying to hire on the West Coast and East Coast and we were not very successful. Part of it is because we didn't have the capital you know, to pay really, really high salaries. And as you might imagine, using machinery is not the, the sexiest of industry. And so you're not, you're not necessarily going to find people who are willing to maybe take a, a salary cut to work on something that they might be passionate about. And so we recognize that it would be very, very challenging for us to, to hire really, really strong technical talent if we only limited ourselves to people you know, that either reside in, in San Francisco or New York or eventually in Chicago. And at the same time, there are incredible, incredible, talented developers and other employees, but in our case, developers are what we needed all over the world. And we first got this experience by working with a a kind of remote development shop. And the the big benefits of that is, one, the cost. We were basically able to to hire individuals at half a third of of what you you might pay um, in the United States, but also the quality of the work was far superior. So one, one of the things that Dan and I used to talk about is, you know, using remote developers, we were able to, to pay half for somebody, you know, twice as good. So, so there was a, you know, immense ROI in hiring remote individuals. It also allowed us to basically have like a, you know, 24 seven development, you know, cycle. I mean, we basically always had somebody working on the product, which is not maybe necessarily the case if, if you only have developers in your local time zone. But it, it was definitely something that worked for us from, from the beginning. And eventually we ended up not using these you know, development shops and, and just hiring you know, directly to work for us. Uh, but at the same time, we continued um, employing both remote developers and eventually remote you know, customer service people, remote QA people. Uh, because if you can do a really good job you know, evaluating and making sure that the people who kind of you know, come through the end of the, the, the hiring funnel are strong, you can end up having a, a really, really great team that is, is motivated, that doesn't necessarily cost you as much as, uh, as they would in the United States. But then those individuals also get the benefit of being remote and being able to, to work on kind of their own time. And one of the, I think, biggest rewards that a lot of our remote employees experience is the fact that, you know, we allow them to kind of work their own hours in whichever location they wanted. And so they, they took the opportunity to travel all, all over the world while working for Machinio. And, and so it was, a, you know, I think, a very positive experience for them. It also was a very positive experience for us, so much so that we continue um, trying to hire you know, remote um, uh, as much as we can. Yeah, and, and a bit of a follow-up, you know, remote work is what we're all doing today. Uh, can you maybe speak to... And, and it sounds like, you know, maybe Dan was more um, in charge of managing those remote teams since he was the, the core product guy. But can you speak to how to successfully manage a, a remote team like that? How do you keep people motivated? How do you, you know, make sure everybody's coming to work every day and putting in their best effort? Yes, certainly that's that's a that's one of the, the biggest challenge with remote individuals, especially if you don't want to constantly micromanage them. 
Um, and so that's something that, that Dan tried very hard to do. Like Dan did not necessarily want to have a, a daily call uh, with every single uh, individual uh, because that was you know, time consuming and um, it's not necessarily kind of the, the environment that everybody necessarily wanted. And so I believe that the way that you know we structured it is by ensuring that every every one of our individuals, both remote and also non-remote, were really uh, aligned on a, a couple of like core you know KPIs or, or performance metrics. And what we saw, and this came from you know, our investors' advice, what we saw is when individuals know kind of where their role, how it impacts kind of the broader success of the company, how how their individual responsibility impacts one of the, you know, the, the key KPIs, they end up being much more motivated than if they're working on something that is so far removed from the big picture that they can't kind of draw that connection. And so by constantly, I think, communicating and, and ensuring that each individual, no matter what level in the company, no matter what they're working on, how their individual role contributed to the, 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 the broader success, I do think that enabled individuals to, to be much more motivated because they knew how critical their role was. And for us as a company that try to be cash flow break even always you know we we didn't necessarily hire like excess roles like we we only hired roles out of need and so that also i believe helped ensure that people were were both bought in to to the company and also really understood that you know the only reason that that they're around is because they serve a critical role for the company not because you know we raise a ton of money and we're lavishly you know hiring all these roles that we may or may not need it was it was the complete opposite and it was really just hiring out of need Yep, that all makes sense. So next, you went through an accelerator program. Can you tell me about that? And was it a good experience? We went through an accelerator program in, in New York City called the Entrepreneurs Roundtable Accelerator. I would say for us, it ended up being a, a very, very positive experience. Uh, because while we had you know, some background in product development, and we already had you know, an MVP that had traction, the areas that we really lacked and we had no idea, you know, even how to kind of enter the industry was as far as the, the fundraising part of, of, of growing a company. So we knew nothing about fundraising and you know, we had no relationships with, with investors, the investment community. And so our ERA really helped us as, a, as an accelerator is they had, you know, relationships with hundreds and hundreds of investors that they very effectively uh, leveraged in helping a lot of their companies kind of raise that those early seed rounds. So it's through one of our investors in ERA that, for example, we we found out about Maxfield and, and how that investment ended up being. It was through through somebody that we met in ERA that we ended up getting introduced to the founder of Indeed, who became one of, of our you know, really impactful investors. Uh, because like I mentioned, you know, from day one, we were really trying to become the Indeed of used machinery. Um, and so I think that the benefit of, of accelerators like ERA is 
you can take from it what you need. I mean, there were a number of companies in our class that maybe weren't as far along in their product development, and that's where the incubator really helped them. For us, we had one one source of need, and that was you know, help us you know raise the early seed round when we when we don't know how to create a pitch deck. We 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 don't know how to pitch somebody. We don't know you know we, we have no ability to to get warm introductions uh, with these investors, and ERA had that both in the you know in, in the relationships that they had with their LPs in the relationships that they had with you know, other you know, advisors that were actively you know looking at the types of companies coming ERA and of course you know you have these demo days at the end of the accelerator where you're you're able to get in front of you know a, a lot of members of the investment community you're able to get great press you know which we ended up doing and then further helps drive, you know, some of those uh, fundraising conversations. So for us, it really, it did come down to the fundraising effort that ERA helped us. And once we were able to to get it right and learn, you know, how, how to raise money through ERA, that helped us, you know, for example, when we were trying to raise our Series A. And can you speak to your experience and how it was working with advisors? You know, you, you, you're kind of starting a company. I'm sure you had lots of people that gave you advice. So yeah, what was your experience like working with advisors? For us, you know, we didn't really have kind of advisors outside of our uh, investors, and even w- within our, our our investors, I think we were very very fortunate. You know, all of our investors, I think, trusted trusted the decision making of myself and Dan, trusted the direction the company was going, and were really there to help us when we needed help, but otherwise kind of enabled us the full freedom to act quickly, to explore, to change business models from commission-based to subscription, for example, without necessarily having to convince them that was the right decision. And so I think for us, it helped us in, in, in various areas, but what was the most, I think, useful is you know, none, none of our investors like forced themselves to forced us to, to make a certain decision or made it very hard for us to, to make the quick decisions and to pursue the opportunities that, that we thought were, were, were worth pursuing. And so that's, that's kind of how we, we leverage our community, our community of investors. Uh, but we didn't necessarily have like a, a huge advisory committee at the company. All right. Well, the company was very successful. I'm sure you got you picked and chose advice wisely. Let's talk about life before and after the acquisition. Can you just yeah speak to that? What was it like before? What was it like after? Yeah. So before and and this touches on you know the the, the previous comment. You know before you know all of our investors both from from the seed round and 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 also you know from from our Series A really trusted our decision making. And so while we had board meetings and and we had you know monthly, sometimes less frequent calls just to update our, our, our investor community. They really allowed us to to operate you know, completely independently, and and that really helped us. You know, having their their trust and support really really helped us. You know, pursue the opportunities that, that we thought were, were worth pursuing, and that was very very important for us you know, to have that that same the same sense of ownership over the company, and also that the the same kind of support after the acquisition. So one of the conversation, one of the topics that we really uh, spoke you know at length with the acquirer ahead of you know the closing of the acquisition liquidity services inc was you know what would the what would the ownership of machine will look like afterwards as far as the 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 decision making as far as the the, the management as far as 
as the operations. And what was really important for us was that you know we continued being able to to move quickly and we continued being able to make the decision we thought without tremendous amount of oversight. I don't think we had a tremendous amount of oversight, you know, before the acquisition. And so it was important for us that with our acquirer, they they did continue to treat us almost like a uh, independent subsidiary. And and part of the the reason why that was really important is because our team was quite small. And and you might be aware, one of the, the biggest mistakes that happen with acquisitions, especially when you acquire a small team, is by trying to integrate you know, a small team and company in a much larger team, you you often end up losing everything that makes that small company special, right? And so our acquirer recognized that it was very, very important to, to keep Machinio fairly separate and continue continue growing and continue moving along the, the really exciting trajectory that Machinio was on. And we recognized that, that the best way to ensure that Machinio continued you know, hitting you know, all of its milestones is, is for, for Dan and myself to continue being, being in charge where we could leverage liquidity services where, where it made sense. And also uh, where it didn't make sense, you know, continue operating the company in much the same way as we did before. And so, you know, we're lucky that's not the case for, for all companies that get acquired by a much by a much larger entity. But liquidity services really did a great job at allowing us to, to continue operating. And you know, the truth is we we ended up you know, moving instead of having you know monthly board meetings with uh, our Series A investor, we ended up having you know monthly calls with the um, you know the, the the acquirer. But the the day to day, if you didn't know that we were acquired, you would not have experienced any changes. And that that was something that was really important to us. That was something that we stressed a lot to our team. Because obviously, when when an acquisition happens, people are are nervous. What's what is going to change? How is our day to day going to change? How's the direction of the company going to change? Like, will will there be a lot more oversight? Will there be a lot more micromanagement? And so we we assured them before the acquisition happened, like nothing would change from the day to day. You know, Liquidity Services is acquiring this company because they're excited by the direction that we're on and the journey that we're taking. And the last thing they want is to derail us in any way. And that ended up being the case. You know, we were able to continue operating the company in, in the same way as we did before. And that's why I believe Machinery has continued uh, to be very, very successful because Liquidity Services, you know, has helped us when we needed help, but for the most part, you know, allowed the, the management of Machinery to, to continue managing the company as, as it did before then. Well, speaking with you for, for this amount of time, it, it's become clear to me, you, you, you may have chalked it up to luck a, a little bit, but you know, it sounds like you made a lot of really deliberate, important decisions to sort of get to that position of getting acquired. And, and, and frankly, a lot, of, a lot of entrepreneurs don't even get there. Most entrepreneurs don't get to sell their companies. So you know, for, for all of us, you know, you're kind of a minority among the, among the majority there because you know, most entrepreneurs don't get to sell companies. So for those of us who have never sold a company, could you tell us some of the key lessons that you were able to learn just going through that experience and getting acquired. Some of the key le- lessons of, of getting acquired. Uh, ultimately, you know, the easiest way to, 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 to get acquired and to, to have a, a successful acquisition is, you know, ensure that you have really good traction. It, it, it's, it's, it's obvious, but one of the reasons why we were successfully able to, to get acquired is because, you know, the company you know, had been growing really, really, really well. And, and we had a, 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 a clear path to, to continue that growth trajectory. And so by, by having that, I think our con- conversation with our acquirers, it was never out of need. 
it was out of kind of opportunity, opportunity for us to leverage, you know, the acquirer to grow faster and opportunity for the acquirer to get a presence in an industry that, that, you know, they were, they were looking to, to, to grow. But for us, I would say, you know, the big thing, and I touched on this um, in, 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 the, in the previous segment, was about ensuring from the beginning that we were aligned with the acquirer on the direction of the company. And that's pretty much where we spend the majority of, of, of our time in, in our conversations uh, during kind of the, the negotiation. And it was really trying to understand, like, do we want the same things um, out, of, out of this like, you know, joint entity? And is what we're looking for uh, as far as a, a partner, you know, what this company is looking to, to provide? And that's one of the reasons I believe the acquisition was, was very successful, not necessarily just from like a you know, financial perspective, but in the aftermath of Machinio being able to continue growing is because we were really aligned on what we wanted and, and what the, the acquirer wanted as well. But but like anything else, you know, the, the more time you can spend researching the process, just like with investing, the more comfortable you are, the better you can do. We, we had like a, a, an M&A advisor that worked with us that that had worked with other companies and helped sell them in the past. And so we, we had that expertise kind of along with us for the ride as far as the acquisition went that we uh, that made the process um, a little bit less stressful because we had somebody that knew, that knew what they were doing much the same way that I think early on you know our incubator really helped us with, with fundraising because we had a partner that kind of knew what they were doing where we didn't I don't know if that completely answers your question but at least that, that those are a couple of things that I think we um, that, that helped us along our uh, acquisition track Oh yeah, it was definitely good. So let's wrap this thing up. You know, Dimitri, what are you up to these days? Uh, so uh, at this time, so we have a, uh, I have a, a two-year-old at home. And so um, I'm in kind of the fortunate position of uh, you know, taking some time off when you know I step down from, from Machinio, and and with COVID, it's really been about uh, kind of uh, taking care of him at home, which has been an incredibly kind of rewarding and fulfilling experience. Awesome. Yeah. What's the next chapter for you? I had an incredible experience with, with Machinio. It was you know, challenging, but um, some of the most fun I've ever had working or in life in general was you know working with my co-founder and building this company from you know, two people to a peak of 70, 80. Um, and so that's, uh, that's an experience that I would love to have again in the future. Um, you know, I think uh, you know, having, having done it once, you know, I, I'm even more more passionate about doing it than 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 before we we started the, the first company. So so certainly I, I would love another opportunity to to, to start a company uh, and incubate something that that has impact in, in the industry. So hopefully I'll I'll have an, uh, another opportunity to do that in the in in the future. But unlikely it'll 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 be the, the case in the in the in the near term. Well, it's a great company. You've certainly earned some time off. So before we get out of here, can you uh, just Speak to the listeners. What's the best way if listeners have questions just to reach you, uh, maybe ask questions themselves? If anyone wants to get in touch with me, I, I don't have a, a very strong uh, social media presence. So probably the best way would just be to uh, uh, contact me uh, via email, which it's my first name, D-M-I-T-R-I-Y, Dimitri, then the letter R at gmail.com. So if anyone's interested in, in getting in touch, uh, I'm, I'm always interested in speaking with other founders and entrepreneurs. And if there's any opportunity where I can help, I, I would love to do so. All right. 
Dimitri, we're going to end it there. Uh, if you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating there as well. Thanks, Dimitri, for joining the show today. I appreciate your time. Let's try and get you back on here soon. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much for, for having me.